in this season, I'm thinking about people that are traveling for the uh, holidays, and I heard about this couple rushing to the airport to fly off for Thanksgiving, and they arrived at the airport and lugged some pretty heavy luggage uh, to uh, the ticket counter to check in, and his wife's suitcase was so heavy, he looked at her and said, well, did you bring the piano also? And she said, no, why? He said, because that's where I left the tickets. Of course, that was back in the days before you could print them off at the airport. I want to make sure that in this Thanksgiving season, you and I get Thanksgiving right. And I don't know what you're struggling with or what's embarrassing you or pressing you or stressing you or, or causing you uh, anxiety, but I want to assure you that come Thanksgiving, on that day and really every day, you can always give God thanks for the Lord Jesus. There is plenty in Him about which to give thanks. Now, of course, in the Baptist church, the answer to everything is Jesus. I understand that. And uh, that's always the appropriate Sunday school answer. But listen, when you've walked with Jesus like I have through these years, you come to appreciate that more and more. So let me invite your attention to a couple of passages of Scripture. Uh, our main one is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And then in a moment, we will look at Exodus chapter 20. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is our main text, and then we'll glance for a moment at Exodus chapter 20. Now, we had a couple of members recently travel to Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, the nation of Georgia, the former communist uh, nation of uh, Georgia. And they were sitting down talking to a man who headed up a department, was a department head of a uh, department in a university in Tbilisi there. And the man asked uh, one, one of our members, and it happened to be Bob Moeller, by the way, uh, tell me, what, what denomination are you? And he was real quick to say, well, primarily I'm a Christian. Now, that's a great Baptist answer, because we Baptists do not believe that you get to heaven on the basis of your denomination. When someone asks you if you're a Christian, and you reply, well, I'm a Baptist, that's almost meaningless. We need to make sure that we know Jesus. Being a Baptist is not enough, nor Catholic, nor Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever. We believe anybody that repents and places faith in Jesus, according to the Scripture, can be saved. And uh, that's terribly important. That doesn't mean it's not important what denomination you're a part of. You always want to be part of one that's rooted in the Scripture. But uh, Bob gave a perfect answer. He said, I'm first a Christian. He said, well, I, I know that, but what particular group? And he said, well, I'm a Baptist. And this man said, oh, Baptists, you're the people who are always talking about Jesus. Now, you know something? I hope that's true. I know a few that's not what they do, but uh, I sure hope that's the case. Apparently, the Baptist in the Republic of Georgia, the nation, had so impressed this man with Jesus that he identified them as the people who always talk about Jesus. Now, that's what I want to do this morning. And around this place, if you're new here, we do a lot of talking about Jesus because we think that's how it is around his throne. Now, this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 does precisely that. Now, if I were to take this message and upload it onto my word processor, Microsoft Word, it would flag a lot of what I have in my message. Because my particular word processor not only flags and identifies misspelled words, it does grammar as well. And one of the things Microsoft does uh, is that it flags comparisons. When you make one comparison versus another. Apparently, in Seattle, where Microsoft is located, that's not politically correct. 
I will tell you, if I were to upload this onto my word processor, Microsoft Word, it would flag just about everything because I'm going to compare Jesus with a lot of other popular notions in our day. And so I, I'm not running around with my stick, a, a stick in my hand poking it in people's eyes. But ladies and gentlemen, Beach Haven Baptist Church, and more important, the Holy Trinity, is absolutely not hesitant to say Jesus is better. Better in so many ways. And that's what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now Paul is going to use some language here that I want to explain real quickly. He's really referring to some covenants. There's the Old Covenant under the Old Testament, then there's the New Covenant. They both had the same elements, but the New Covenant changed the order. The Old Covenant is much like a constitution, and the New Covenant is too. If you don't understand the concept of covenant, think about a constitution, an agreement. And God came through with Israel with one kind of constitution called the Old Testament, and then He gave us another for the whole world in the New Testament. Jesus established a new constitution. Now, there's some similarities, but the order is wildly different. In the Old Testament, God said, If you obey me, I will bless you. I'll bless you with abundance. I will bless you with life. I'll bless you with protection. Obey me, and I will bless you. In the New Testament, the terms are the same, but they're reversed. God says, I will bless you, now obey me. I'm going to give you all the provision that you need. I'm going to give you all the grace that you need. I'm going to give you all the sustenance. I'm going to give you all the mercy. I'm going to give you all the presence of, of my life. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to bless you that way. Now, go out and obey me. That's what we find in the Word of God. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there was nothing but failure. I don't know if you've read uh, large portions of the Old Testament, but one of the things that's going to impress you is that one person after another promises to obey God, but then that person fails. I mean, Adam and Eve fell out of the gate. Cain fails. Noah fails. And not only that, but Abraham fails aplenty. Isaac is not a major character in the Old Testament, but he takes time to fail. And then we've got Jacob, and he fails. And ladies and gentlemen, we're not even done with the first book of the Bible, and everybody's failing. One person after another. We've got 38 other books to go in the Old Testament, one after the other. And I remember reading one day throughout the Old Testament saying, can't somebody do something right? And it was a mirror reflection of me. So one after the other tries to live for God's blessing and keeps failing and then arising from the ashes of doused hopes and broken hearts and broken promises, one arises in the New Testament that obeys God in everything. And he says, I'm going to live in you forever. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you my grace. You've got my redemption. I've purchased it all. I obeyed and the Father blessed me with a name that's above every name. And I've got a church now. And I'm going to live with them and dwell with them. And from the basis of that power and that grace, now they're going to obey me. Aren't you glad you're in the new constitution under Jesus Christ? Isn't that good news? Now, can't somebody give thanks to the Lord on Thursday and every day for that? That's what we have in the biblical text. Now, this is a very complex text that commentators struggle with, but there is a pivot verse that really summarizes it all in verse number 12. And here, Paul explained that Christ's superiority made him 
bold with the message. He says there in verse number 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Oh, I sure would like for somebody in this day to get bold about the right thing. I mean, folks are bold about so many misguided or peripheral or uh, uh, incidental or tertiary things. They're not excited and not bold about the right thing. And oftentimes wrong, uh, bold about the wrong thing. But Paul was bold about the right thing. So he says, therefore, which points to the verses above, since we have such hope, that's verses 7 through 11, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, verses 13 through 18. So verse 12 is the pivot verse. And what's, att- what's attempted here is to build our boldness by the, on the basis of hope and on basis of a new vision in Jesus so that we can tell the world. And we're going to need that as a church family. We're going to be a telling church. We're not going to be mousy. We're not going to be wimpy. By the way, I don't know if you've heard the news or read the other day, but the quota for Christian wimps has been filled. We don't need any more. We need people who are bold in Jesus Christ. And we've got a hope that propels that boldness. This is precisely what we have here. And that's because Jesus Christ is superior. So boldness can arise in you when you trust that Christ is better and better than all. Well, better in regards to what? Well, let me answer that. First, boldness arises from Jesus' better promises. You know something? There's some important things that come across life on which I feel like I'm bold or at least confident in recommending. I know a mechanic in the area that I like to recommend people to. He's the kind of guy that's talked me out of getting work done on my car. I'm pretty confident in him. He said, you don't need to spend money on that. Uh, He's also told me, now in a few months, you might need to spend money on this and do this. Hey, I recommend people to him all the time. I've got two of those here in Athens. Not only that, but when it comes to special needs children, I've got some confidence in that as well. We've seen that done successfully, and we we want to be modest, but we've got some recommendations with that. Uh, I've got some confidence about some other things as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we can have a similar confidence with Jesus. In fact, I'd say, if we can be confident about mechanics and car dealers, and if we can be confident about parental advice, shouldn't we be even more confident in Jesus? And that's Paul's whole rationale here in verses 6 through 11. He contrasts the Old and New Covenant, the Old Testament Constitution and the New Testament, and argues from the lesser to the greater. And he says, essentially, Jesus offers better promises than ever came through the law. And one of those is life instead of death, verses 6 and 7. He says there in chapter 3, verse 6, God has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant or new constitution, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written engraved on stones, the Ten Commandments stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So he's arguing that the new covenant constitution under Jesus is better than the old. Now the old was attended by a glory on Moses' face. Moses received it from God and came down the mountain and gave it to Israel and there was a blinding glory from his face to where he had to eventually veil it or they could not look upon him. So he's saying here that the old covenant uh, threatened death if you disobeyed, but the new covenant, new constitution promises life in Christ. Now let me illustrate how that happens. Turn back 
to the Old Testament, to the second book of the Old Testament, to chapter 20, and there you will find the Ten Commandments. And I want to demonstrate how this happens. Sometimes I use this in evangelism, in fact, and I want to show you how it is that the old kills. It kills hope. It kills self-reliance. It kills self-righteousness. It kills self-confidence before God. It kills any hope of being made right by God, with God. And let's begin with the first commandment, verse number 3 of Exodus chapter 20. He said here, you shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever had a God before God? Well, no, of course not, I haven't. Oh, don't be so quick. Let me put it another way. Have you ever had more devotion to something more than Jesus? Have you ever loved something more than Jesus? Did you ever fall into a romantic relationship and love that person to where it diminished your walk with God? Did you slack off on your church attendance and Bible reading and your tithing and giving? In other words, have you ever had a God before the Lord Jesus Christ? It is very easy to disobey this particular thing. Then he said, the next commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Well, I don't have any idols. Oh my goodness, hold on a minute. Have you ever backed off of service to Jesus and magnifying his name for something physical? A baseball bat, a baseball glove, a car, a job, anything that is physical, has it ever taken the place of Jesus? Well, let's move on. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, in verse 7. Have you ever been spiritually insincere? Now, that's not just cussing, although that could be a part of it. But have you ever been spiritually insincere and used God's name to make yourself look good and to leave a better impression about your walk with God than what you really have in your heart and life? That's taking God's name in vain. You've been empty use. Then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It doesn't say the Sabbath hour. It says the Sabbath day. And so there's to be vigorous worship. Have you ever gone on vacation and not worship God on Sunday when you've been away? Then verse number 12, honor your father and mother. Has there ever been a time in your life where you just wanted to pop your parents' heads off their shoulders? You broke that. All right, verse 13, you should not commit murder. Jesus said if you have, that, if you have anger in your heart to that extent, you broke this commandment because that's oftentimes where murder starts. Then you should not commit adultery. Jesus said if you lust upon a woman in your heart, you've committed spiritual adultery. You should not steal. Have you ever run off from the office or workplace with pens and paper clips that didn't belong to you? You should not bear false witness. You don't lie. Verse number 17, do not covet your neighbor's house or anything belonging to your neighbor. Have you ever wanted what other people have and was not satisfied with what you've got? Is there anybody here that hasn't broken all of these commands? So what you're telling me then is that you're an idolatrous, disrespectful, murderous, adulterous, thieving, lying, coveting sinner. That is what we all are before God. And what just happened is that what Paul said in verse 6 just came true. The letter of the law kills. God just killed any hope of making ourselves right with Him and standing right before Him. That's precisely what it does. But when you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus swaps places with you. And He becomes the guilty and you become the righteous. And that's how we are forgiven in Him. Uh, turn over a couple pages to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says there, about it's talking about Jesus, and it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
Now, you know all those gross sins you just listed in your mind as we went through the Ten Commandments? When Jesus died upon Calvary's cross, He became every one of them. And so when Jesus died, the sentence has been served. There's nothing else that has to be paid before the court of God with Jesus. He's done it all. And so the judgment that you and I deserve for our multiplied, countless sins, Jesus has taken care of. And what God has done is that He's done something similar to a financial arrangement. He's inputted our guilt to Jesus and His righteousness to us. In other words, we're busted, we're broke, we're bankrupt. So Jesus takes our account and transfers it to us. And that leads to the next blessing and promise, righteousness instead of condemnation. Look at verse number 9 of 2 Corinthians 3. For the ministry of condemnation had glory. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even when, or for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. So the new covenant, the new constitution under Jesus is far more glorious because it brings righteousness instead of condemnation. So not only did Jesus pay for our sins at the cross, he transferred to us all of his beauties all of His glories, to our account. So not only do we miss the payment and judgment for our sin, we have freely given to us all the blessings of righteousness. Listen, when you're in Jesus Christ, God the Father, the judge, could no more condemn you than He could condemn Jesus. And that's what happened. And that's what transpired at the cross of Christ. Do you understand why preachers like me can't get over that and have got to talk about it every Sunday? Oh, the glorious cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. His grace so free, sufficient for me. Oh, how wonderful it is to know Jesus who is crucified. So there's life instead of death, righteousness instead of condemnation, and then there's stability instead of anxiety. Verse number 11. For if what is passing away, the Old Testament, the Old Constitution, was, was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And so it is a permanent thing. In the Old Testament times, the Gentile pagans got sick and tired of their pagan Roman and Greek gods. And many of them would flock to the local Jewish synagogue where the law was read. And it made life so much better to follow the Old Testament law than it did to follow the pagan gods because the pagan gods needed redemption. I mean, they were, they were a miserable lot themselves. And that made an impact upon the first century world. Well, if that's the effect that the Old Testament law had upon the ancient world, just imagine what this new constitution in Jesus will do for them. It gives a status that will never change. In other words, the moment you come to Jesus Christ, you are eternally sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you can never lose that status before God. Once you're saved, you are always safe in him, so you can rest your head, weary sinner, upon the death of Jesus. So let me summarize. Jesus has invested all he is to provide the promises and to eliminate all the threats, to come through with life and righteousness and stability and to eliminate death, condemnation, and anxiety. And ladies and gentlemen, of all the philosophies, all the religions, all the thought patterns of the world, only Jesus can offer this and deliver. He is better. Listen, He is better than the Old Testament law, and if He's better than the Old Testament law, He's better than everything else. 
Oh, glory to, you can sit out there quiet if you want to. I'm going to have a spell up here. Help me out, church. Help me out. Let's get excited about Jesus. Uh, one, one poet wrote, Run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It tells me fly, and it gives me wings. The law demanded something of dead people. God makes dead people live and then empowers them. So if Jesus is better than God's law, he's better than uh, everything else. I, I need to say to you, Others may preach Jesus better than I do, but there's no one who will ever preach a better Jesus. No one ever will. Because He offers better promises. And He invites you to better promises as well. In fact, at the end of this message, we're going to sing a song. And our staff will be here. And that's your time to respond positively to God's invitation to come and have life in Jesus Christ. And God's working on some of your hearts. If you're paying attention right now, God's working with you. And that is a spiritual sign that God's dealing with you. And He wants to transform and change you and give you these promises. Life and righteousness and stability instead of death and condemnation and anxiety about your walk with Him. So when we sing in just a moment, you step out from where you are. Meet a staff member and have your spiritual need met today in Jesus Christ by faith in Him. And let me tell you, Jesus deserves everything you've got. And isn't it a wonderful thing? When He invites you to come to Him, He not only demands your life, He wants your sins as well. And I don't understand how anyone could resist an invitation like that. Now, here's where this uh, applies to us. We can share boldly, daily, and with our Merry Christmas Athens emphasis, because Jesus, because when you do, you offer others someone who makes better promises, and He keeps them. So boldness arises from Jesus' better promises, but boldness arises from Jesus' better vision. And vision vision can change us. What we put in our eyesight can change us. Just imagine scoreboards. I mean, eight days ago, Georgia fans weren't very happy. The scoreboard was quite discouraging, wasn't it? But yesterday, the scoreboard was quite encouraging. Your vision can change, uh, can transform you. When students receive a notice from the school's registrar that they've been approved for graduation, man, that changes everything, doesn't it? Um, And we hope it happens for more and more. I remember remember the uh, day I hit my first home run as as an 11-year-old in Little League. I could not believe it. I wasn't trying. I just happened to connect on a fat pitch on the right place of the bat, and it sailed over the fence. That was the most wonderful thing. And it gave me some confidence to begin trying to hit more. I struck out a few times after that. But the truth is, is that it changed everything about how I approached baseball. In other words, what is in your vision can change and transform you. Now here, Paul uses the word vision, or see, excuse me, in order to communicate thought and vision of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here in this text. He um, uses see as a metaphor for thinking. Thoughts have eyes and visions. It's very difficult for you to have a thought without an accompanying vision or picture, mental picture in your mind. And that's what we have here in this text, in verses 14 through 18, or excuse me, 13 through 18. Uh, There is, first, I want you to notice the terrible veil, verses 13 through 15. He says in verse 12, We have great boldness, unlike Moses in verse 13, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, 
For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in reading the Old Testament because the veil is taken taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. So back when Paul, uh, uh, excuse me, back when Moses brought the Ten Commandments, things were veiled before the people. They could not see the full glory of the law. And Paul said, that's what's going on today. And you know, there are people all over that have this veil over their hearts. They, they just don't get it. In fact, they're tempted to think and say, you know, that's all lovely for you, but I, th- I think you're taking this a little bit too seriously. Uh, th- that might be good for you, but it's, it's not for me. And they walk off with some contempt. Or they may wonder, why do you get so excited about Jesus and about your church and, and all? Or, um, you know, we need to really have some common sense here. And they try to douse the flame of zeal for Jesus. In other words, there are people that have actually been to worship services, and sometimes they're sitting next to each other. They've been in worship services, and they've never, or they've opened the Bible and read it, and they've never gotten direction from God from the Word. They don't understand that. They just make up their minds about decisions and never consider that God actually has a word of direction for everything in life. Now, maybe not the color of socks you wear, but the significant issues in life. I mean, um, everything from where to go to school, how to spend your life, what vocation, who to marry, how to raise kids, how to get a word from God. Do you know God is active in these things? And they sit back and look at Christian people who seriously follow God and think, well, you're, you're taking this a little too seriously. Or they're mystified. Or they say, well, what do you mean by a personal relationship with Jesus? It's odd. There's a veil that lies over their heart, just like Paul was talking about here in this text. So that's the terrible veil. But look at the transforming view in verse 16 to 18. It's far superior. There are better terms in verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The only thing you've got to do to have that veil taken away and get a word from God, get direction from God, is to turn to Jesus Christ. Now that implies you're turned in the wrong direction. And you're going to have to be humble enough this morning to admit, I'm going the wrong direction and I've got to change my mind and internally turn the other direction. When someone turns to the Lord, then the veil's taken away. You you don't have to become perfect. You you don't have to become a Bible scholar. Uh, In other words, just as soon as you turn to Jesus in sincerity, God can come through in your life. I remember when I came to Christ, there were a lot of people I had to forgive because some of them had done me wrong. And I want to assure you, just as soon as I did, forgiveness got on my heart for them. And it broke my heart what they had done. And I knew one particular friend was indeed ashamed of himself or how he had treated me. I called him up one day and I said, John, I know what you did and I forgive you. Ladies and gentlemen, I would have never done that on my own. But the truth is, is that I got a word from God. I looked in his word and he specified to me, you need to forgive John for what he's done for you. And so I instantly called him and took care of that. And from that point on, we've been good friends ever since. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what God can do. Better terms. You turn to Jesus, the veil's taken away. This is not complex stuff. So there are better terms. There's a better impact in verse number 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. 
Now, there's liberty from the things he talked about earlier. There's liberty from eternal death. There's liberty from condemnation. There's liberty from anxiety in your walk with God. So there's a better impact. And then verse 18, there's a better power. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to increasing glory, if I can paraphrase it that way, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There is a greater power. In other words, if you see Jesus, and we're talking about a metaphor here, you see Jesus, that sight of Jesus transforms you. And I want to tell you, I've been walking with him in his word for 35 years, and I've, I've come on the days I've come with an open, humble heart. Jesus Christ has never failed to unveil himself to me in some meaningful way. Because he's that gracious, and he is that good. Now, how do I get a vision of Jesus? Let me mention a couple of practical things that will help. One is the scripture. If you want to see or set your mind on Jesus Christ in a way that transforms you, you've got to have a meaningful walk with God in the Word of God. You cannot neglect the Bible and let dust accumulate on top of it and have a meaningful walk with Him. Jesus said in John 5, 39, that the Scriptures are they which testify of Him. But then prayer as well. A growing, robust, meaningful prayer life with Jesus. He promises in Jeremiah 29, 13, Then you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all, my, uh, all your heart. And then not only that, but the church. The church is his body. There are some that are elbows. There are some that are fingers. There are some that are hands. There are some that are ears. There are some that are hearts. Christ is the head. And so when you come into a church, you see a living organism the very body of Jesus Christ. You cannot have a meaningful, dynamic, robust walk with Jesus Christ without a meaningful, dynamic, robust walk with the local church. You've got to have it. And that's why we urge church attendance on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. So His church. And then evangelism and missions. Jesus said in the context of outreach, He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, in Matthew 28 and verse number 20. And then salvation. John 3, 3, Jesus said, uh, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You'll not see the kingdom in verse 36, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus promised in Revelation 3, 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In Revelation 21, 4, after we get to heaven, it says, and his servants will see his face practical immersion in these disciplines makes all the difference in the world. So when a mind gets active with Jesus, the mind changes. When a soul gets active with Jesus, the soul changes. When a Christian gets active with Jesus, the Christian changes. When a church gets active with Jesus, the church changes. When the nation gets active with Jesus, the nation changes. And when the world gets active with Jesus, the world will change. And that's why we need to share boldly. You can share boldly because you offer someone who can transform them and promises to do so and keeps his promises to everyone who comes to him on his terms. Now that reminds me of uh, Amber. Back when we lived in uh, Texas, Jonathan and I went door to door to do some evangelism one day in our small town of Crowley. And we knocked on one door and there was a new uh, woman uh, to town. She was a 30-year-old mother by the name of Amber. And she was so sweet and so polite at the door. And uh, we uh, talked with her, and, and she did a little survey that we have, and at the end, she opened up her heart and life to Jesus Christ. 
And I remember I prayed for her, and then I said, Amber, why don't you go ahead and pray for yourself and confess to God that you need His grace and that Jesus, uh, you're trusting Jesus' death and resurrection, and you're asking Him to come into your life. And she did, and when she said amen, she said, Woo, that feels better. Man, I love that. I love that. E. Stanley Jones, a Methodist missionary, said that when he received Christ as his Savior, he felt like he had swallowed sunshine. And from that man's life, I can really believe it. He was a vivacious witness for Christ from then on out. You know, swallowing the sunshine of Jesus Christ would be a whole lot better than some of the things you've swallowed through the years. When you come to Jesus, you don't have to doubt Him one bit. And when you share Him with the world, you can do so boldly because He offers better promises. And He transforms and He changes lives. So I'm entirely justified. Microsoft Word program may not appreciate it, but I'm entirely justified to say Jesus is better. And in case we misunderstand, let me make it clear. Jesus is better than Islam. Jesus is better than Buddhism. Jesus is better than Hinduism. Jesus is better than Judaism. Jesus is better than secularism. Jesus is better than materialism. Jesus is better than all the isms that hopefully one day will soon be wasms. He's better than the next party. He's better than the next addiction. He's better than romance. He's better than self-fulfillment. He's better than power. He's better than sex. He's better than money. Jesus is better than you. And Jesus is better than me. And Jesus is better than anything that will tempt you to say no to Him during this invitation that follows. How do you get on, in on Him? you got to change your mind. you got to change your mind about yourself. You're really not all that impressive to God. you got to admit it. We've all had to do it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The disposition of your heart should be to collapse in humiliation before Him, but at the same time, trusting Him with yourself. You know, you deposited paychecks in the bank. If you have children, you deposited them to child care at some time or another. Jesus is saying, now I want you to deposit your sins and your life and eternity into me. And that's what he's calling forth from you today. Give it all to him. Let me pray for you.